This episode is sponsored by Mint Home Loans. With mortgage interest rates nearing all-time lows, now is the time to see what options you may qualify for. Make Mint Home Loans your trusted partner for all your mortgage needs. In today's times, your money matters. Shop local with Mint at 410-458-6847 for any home loan questions you may have. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Plandle, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, well, they have a story. Some stories, though, they seem more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a movie or a blockbuster miniseries. But our next guest today, his story is the basis for a podcast. Really excited to have him on. His name is Calvin Ayer. Calvin is a Canadian Antiguan entrepreneur and the founder of the Air Group and Bodog Entertainment brand. In 2000, Air launched online gambling company Bodog, the success of which made him a billionaire, ultimately landing him on the cover of Forbes Magazine's annual Billionaires Edition and Star Magazine's Most Eligible Billionaire Bachelor List. From his humble beginnings of operating a produce stand, he has demonstrated a pattern that while life's tough, you can be tougher, no matter where your story begins. Calvin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I, and you know, I, I got to tell you, I mean, looking up your bio, um, it's beyond impressive, but I must say it had to start before you were a billionaire, before you were CEO. Um, you started somewhere. Where'd you begin? Pig farm in Saskatchewan. Yeah, I uh, grew up on a pig farm in Saskatchewan and we had grain as well and cows, but predominantly I remember the pigs because... Uh, one of the things I had to do every morning before I went to school or before I uh, opened my presents or whatever at Christmas time, I had to go out and feed, feed the pigs. And it was, uh, you know, minus 20 good old uh, Canadian prairie winters. So, uh, yeah, I, that stuck in my head. <laughs> and, of course, uh, going to school in the morning, I'd have uh, big shit on my boots, of course, but as did most of the boys. <laughs> all coming from, in from farms. So you worked but, on yeah, a farm. That's where it all started by, by my memory. By, by your That's memory. Where it all started. And so tell me yeah. about what was the first job? What was, how did it begin? I mean, to become where you are today, it probably took a lot of steps. You were the janitor. You were the, what did it take yeah, to get yeah. here? Yeah, I, um, well, you know, I went to university. I have two degrees, one in sciences, general sciences, and one in uh, management finance, it's a master's degree in the States. One's Canadian, one's American. And in the summertime, I started a fruit hauling business. I was selling fruit from uh, the South Okanagan out to Saskatchewan, where I actually grew up, where the pig farm was, and uh, where I had lots of relatives. And so I would uh, buy, uh, started with just a U-Haul trailer. I'd load it up full of fruit, haul it out, and phone all my relatives and get a spot on the side of the road somewhere, put my signs out, and my relatives would phone all their friends, and they'd come get some fresh uh, South Okanagan fruit from Canada from one of the fruit, uh, few uh, fruit growing areas in Canada. And then uh, from there, I just started starting companies and little companies doing this and that, but mostly they weren't uh, successes. The first one that was successful was a company called HQ Vancouver, which was a technology incubation company in uh, Vancouver. And what, what made it unique is that 
I took over an entire floor. It was a package office business that had failed, and I took it over, got all the, the infrastructure. But I knew that the the router for the Canada backbone of the university network was downstairs in that building because Simon Fraser University had a branch downtown campus in that co same complex. So my idea that was what made that business work is I stretched my own fiber down to that router, and then through that I could connect to the nascent in internet, uh, such as it was back in those days. And I just word of mouth got out in the tech, the sort of tech startup community around the internet. And next thing you know, I had my office slammed full of all these internet startups just before the first internet boom happened. And unbeknownst to me, a lot of them were actually serving porn. But uh, at the time, <laughs> I, I didn't it. know, and it, which is legal, which is legal in, in Vancouver. So it was nothing illegal. It's just I was shocked, wondering why. All of a sudden, I got all these rooms full of servers so quickly, and I, 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 it took me a year before I found out what they were actually doing. But uh, yeah, so but out of that, also the uh, Cisco Systems, I set up their Western Canada office out of my office and whatnot, and I, I took their sales networking course, and uh, you know, eventually I decided to start my own internet startup, and I started up a sports betting company, and that turned into Bodog, and kind of that's how I got to be. Involved in uh, payments and cryptocurrency and or, or Bitcoin. And that's that's how you got in. Now, but there is this belief among people who never really sit to think about it. When they see someone of your success, they think it either came easy or it happened overnight. But this didn't happen overnight for you. This was a long no. journey, a long journey of failures, but ultimately successes. So what did you learn about the failures along the way? Well, uh, I don't think you can find anybody successful that doesn't have failures because fa failures are how you learn. I mean, it's like going forward and backwards and forward and backwards. So you finally find the right path forward. So everybody's got their failures. You, you just hope that the failures are not painful enough to completely derail your, your career. Right. Cause uh, you, you never know what can happen. Um, but you, you know, failures, as long as you handle them properly are part of the process. And uh, thankfully I, at least more recently, most of my projects have worked. So <laughs> they've done they've a lot done uh, well. less painful. <laughs> now, now, Bodog, I mean, this was, you know, in a space that there was competition. Yet you rose. How did that happen? Yeah. How did you find a way to do it different, to build it, and then to make sure that it would succeed? Yeah, I, I think my secret sauce was, uh, was uh, early on coming up with a better branding strategy and a marketing plans and whatnot. A lot of the incumbents in the earliest days were actually street bookies who would just kind of, well, let's uh, go online. So they weren't very flamboyant and they, they just didn't really understand the concept of marketing because I mean, you, you don't market yourself uh, traditional in a traditional manner when you're doing street bookie stuff because you don't want people to know other than your, your, your customers. You don't want anybody else to know other than your customers. So it's, Street bookies are kind of multi-level marketing guys. It's word of mouth, but in a very selective kind of way, they do word of mouth so it doesn't actually get too far away from what they're uh, really trying to accomplish, which is to set up a big string of customers without anybody knowing that it's set up. And so when I came in, uh, not having that background, having a background that was more in, in these early internet startup stuff and traditional businesses and marketing and whatnot, I kind of just came at things from a different angle. And I believe it was just that difference and how early I got in that allowed me to be one of the survivors. Because of the most of the people that I knew back in the old days that started out, they, they didn't survive. Uh, most of the people that made it through um, 
fact, it wasn't that many. What happened is, as it always does with new industries, is that the people that were in similar industries and had a lot of buying power, when the time was right, they just came in and sort of bought their way into positions, like the big British uh, sports betting companies and whatnot. Wow. And so, but along the way to, to build Bodog, you had a lot of challenges. I mean, there were, there were I'm sure, government entities, there, there were states, so yeah. I, I'm in one of them, Maryland, that that they didn't like yeah. it. I mean, what was that like? And that had yeah. to have at least well, taken your piece yeah, away for a time. I mean, the, the, yeah, it wasn't only the state of Maryland. The state of uh, New York also was uh, insisted on um, trying to use uh, the U.S. criminal justice system to try and stop offshore operators from taking business in, inside the United States. I, I think I did have a, a beef with the state of Maryland, but the difference between myself and pretty much all the rest of them, except for just a few, is that uh, I actually had a license in Antigua for doing online gaming. And Antigua was in a trade dispute at that time with the United States, which Antigua has won repeatedly, and in fact still has an open case, because the US still to this day hasn't settled this. So under international law, and there's been case studies about this so, and uh, whatnot, so it's not, uh, uh, not, not a secret, uh, but I was in the middle of an international trade dispute, and so I was kind of collateral damage. And as a result of that, I actually had support of the Canadian and Antiguan governments through the entire time of my dispute, and eventually it got settled. Um, um, some people, of course, didn't have uh, yeah. the uh, protection of their governments. They got into those same types of disputes at that time. But uh, I, I still maintain that really what that was all about, it, it wasn't a criminal issue. It was, it was about um, lobbying, uh, gaming companies in the United States lobbying, uh, politicians and, and Department of Justice directly, getting them to use criminal laws to shut down what they perceived to be competitors. And that was really what it was about. And then and, and TIGA actually had a bilateral agreement, trade agreement that included gaming services. So they were actually able to win at the WTO repeatedly, which means that under international law, uh, everything I was doing was legal and how it's supposed to work and where the United States is off the side and how they handled themselves, the, uh, the federal government at the time, is that you're supposed to, when you do a, a international trade agreement with a foreign country, you're supposed to, after you enter into that agreement or before probably, preferably, you're supposed to align all your domestic laws to make sure that you can live up to your international commitments. So the U.S. being a federal system, it's kind of doesn't work very. That that part of it doesn't Quite work very complicated. good in the United States. Yeah, I, I have yeah, to imagine it's hard to get all the states to agree to that kind of thing, right? So, anyways, it's no big deal. I mean, uh, everybody was just doing their job on both sides of the fence, as far as I saw it. And uh, eventually, I was able to negotiate uh, what I would call a. Uh, uh, a way out where everybody sort of felt like they wanted something at least. And not, now it's all gone. And, and now it's in the past. Now, we interviewed someone not too long ago by the name of Dan Pena. And what he said in terms of what drove him on the success side was, I'd rather be dead than poor. Now, that was his interpretation <laughs> of success. What drove you? How did you find a way to go from farm boy to techie to where you went in, in your career? Like, what was yeah. your fuel? Yeah, I, not being rich, actually, I, I never really thought that I'd be this uh, successful in in my career. I actually was more driven by just challenges. You know, I think I can do this and then do it. And it was incremental and kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But it's, I kind of just like building things. I'm kind of a builder. So, yeah. You like to build. Now, has there been someone? To- I, I like build building and I like challenges. And, and challenges as well. Now, have you had a, a mentor? Like who? Who has been your guide or who's someone that you can lean on or, or maybe 
that person hasn't been there. I mean, what what happens when, you know, I'm going to say because I've been in the room with you, is to me, you are the smartest guy in the room. What's it like when you see the world different than most? You not have, when Craig's in the room. Craig, Dr. Wright, he, he is a brilliant mind. No, not when Craig's in the room. But what happens that, that guy when, makes everybody feel stupid. Yeah, but you do see the world differently, though, Calvin. You don't see Correct. it like people yeah. see problems. You go, yeah, but look at the solution. Look at look at the reward. Correct. And, yeah. and so exactly. what's that been like I, for you? I see opportunity where other people see challenges all the time. And, in fact, uh, one of the greatest opportunities I've ever seen in my entire life is the crypto industry attacking BSV because it's creating all these market uh, holes in the BSV ecosystem that myself and my friends are filling right now. And, and uh, because the fundamental business model of Bitcoin's original protocol, BSV, is so different and doesn't actually compete with anything else out there because of the, its superpowers of massive scaling, which enables nanotransactions and massive immutable data storage on a public blockchain, which nobody else in the world can do. So BSV has a global monopoly, patent-protected monopoly in that thing stuff. But because of the reality distortion field coming from all the other platforms, thinking that somehow what we can do that they can't do is competition, which is mind-blowing, they're actually stopping uh, a bunch of people from investing and starting to fill these uh, niches in the actual earn and spend economy that's being created around this unique platform. And that's created a massive market opportunity for myself and my friends. So for that, I thank them. And, and so what got you into crypto? I mean, you, you've, you know, you've succeeded in, well, first of all, in, in, in everything else. Yeah. Why the crypto space? Bitcoin is not crypto. It's an unencrypted uh, platform that security comes from its economic model. So it's actually not crypto. Some of the other platforms may be crypto. I, I think some of them might not be even anyways. So crypto is actually kind of just a name that's been applied because there was cryptocurrencies in the past. But Bitcoin itself is not a cryptocurrency. And I have not actually had anything to do with any of the other platforms ever. So I'm only a Bitcoin guy. And the reason I'm a Bitcoin guy is because I believe in the, the vision of Craig to create a platform that solves real-world enterprise problems and creates the opportunity for unique business models for consumer-facing apps. And in order to do that, you need scaling. As Dr. Wright says regularly, scaling solves all problems. And the only platform that scales is the original one that uh, he designed. It's now trading as BSV as a trading ticker. But it scales massively, and it al allows all this other stuff. And without scaling, you can't do it. So, uh, you know, that's that's been my focus, and I, I can't see it changing because if you looked at what you what we're doing with BSV, nobody else is doing it. And so what drives you, though? I mean, again, you've reached the stage where money, you have the money. What, what I find, and this, again, this is my opinion, is that you ultimately are creating more work from yourself, for yourself, more distractions yes. that... What is yes. it the thing that you desire most? Again, I know people in life, they say, man, if I had a million dollars, my life would become, yeah. I, if I had 10 million, if I had 100, if, if I reach billionaire status, you'd never hear from me again, I'd be somewhere in Tibet. Yet you seem to never want or never have enough. But what is it you don't have enough of? Well, yeah, that's not exactly what's going on. I, I, I'm a builder and uh, I, I was there at the start of the online gaming industry. And I built a company, and at the same time, I built an industry. So I'm doing it again. I'm building companies now, and I'm building another industry. And the industry I'm building is the Bitcoin industry, 
which is not the crypto industry and doesn't have anything to do with all the speculative trading and exchanges. It has to do with creating a platform and companies that fill market niches inside this platform and its ecosystem that allows you to use this platform to solve real world problems. And that real world, world problem, I mean, EHR data is a classic example. That's one that's public and, and that's uh, using this technology as a way to uh, break apart the silos that medical data is held currently in the United States and create a more efficient way to do tracking of a whole bunch of things with medical patient records. And that project is going full speed ahead right now. There's going to be proof of concept coming out in the new year. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about this, all this stuff, ICOs and trading them and making money and then everybody's losing money and nobody really knows what you can do with them. Well, that's because you can't do anything with them. That isn't what we do. We create technology that solves real world problems. Real world. And, and what do you see right now on the healthcare side as being the biggest problem of which you have a solution <coughs> or what you're a part of a team that's creating the solution for? Well, well EHR data, this is just one example, but they, they, you know, they want to break apart the siloing of uh, patient records and make it so that you can actually have a system that with the proper checks and balances in place, that all the people you want can access the data that needs to be shared. And right now, that, that with the existing technology, that can't be done. And that's EHR data. Um, there's a smart city project that's not public yet that's going to be coming out with like an Internet of Things application and, and a recent announcement by Shatters that uh, he's going to be demoing the capability of TerraNode to do nano transactions. Would work really well with that because Internet of Things, you know, when you're talking about machine commerce, you have, but you have to remember the machines are all owned by companies and eventually people. So it's still people doing the commerce, but it's going to be done at a, at a nano level between different appliances. It's the Internet of Things. So that's where this is all going. And, and that is the enterprise side. And then the, the consumer facing apps, there's all sorts of things that can be done where you, if with the model of valuing all data at the nano transaction capability out on the internet so the consumers can do different things and operate differently and have control of, of their ownership of their own data. And that's where this is all going. And, and BSV is the only block is the only technology that's existing today that can do it already. Um, you know, maybe something else will come out of the woodwork, but I'll repeat myself. All the other platforms do not compete with BSV. So, I don't understand why there's so much attacking on this technology because it's it's actually focused on stuff that's got nothing to do with the, the token exchange model that they're all involved in. Yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. Very interesting. So it leads me to the world of entrepreneurship because that's who you are. And people around the world reach out to you with, I'm sure, lots of business plans, lots of ideas. You know, yeah, you, they I, come in steady. They, they come in steady. They come and in I, steady. And yeah. I remember- I have a team actually that works on screening them to see if it's anything we're interested in. Also, there's the process. So I remember what you told me. Specifically, you said that an entrepreneur's time is a replacement ultimately for capital, that their time- they're In the early days. It. In the early days. So how In the early you... days, actually. It changes, it changes when the organization gets so big that you've actually got other people inside the organization that can do all this stuff. Uh, then, then an entrepreneur is value in, in, on top of a large organization is, is more just in, in continuing to provide sound strategic direction and values, you know, value structure. Like what do we represent? And what kind but of companies? In the early days, in the early days, absolutely in startup space, the founder's time is a substitute for money. So the more things 
the founder can do. If the founder can, you know, do do contracts on weekends, then you don't need to hire a lawyer. So the more things the founder can do by himself, the less capital you need. That's a great way of putting it. And what do you look for when you're looking to invest? Are you looking for the company or is it the person? What do you invest in? Hmm. A little bit of both, but right now it's also skewed by the fact that we're trying to stimulate the earn and spend economy. So we we also are going to be attracted to people that feel holes in the ecosystem we're trying to build around uh, BSV. <clears throat> so a little bit of all of that, we kind of stew it together. That's kind of where your attention is. And then for, for people out there that, that believe that when it's too tough, they start to quit. When the business that they had believed would take off just hasn't gotten there. When do you decide to quit and or do you never quit on something? Well, yeah. I mean, you do have to quit sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You, you have to know. You, you have to call it. But it's, it's almost, you know, there's no formula for that one. It's kind of more like instinct. On the instinct side. I don't. Yeah. There's no formula because sometimes, uh, you know, it looks hopeless. And your instincts tell, say, we'll just give her another push and eventually you win. So, and then sometimes you say, you convince yourself that it's hopeless and you stop and then you think, oh, thank God I stopped now because I would have uh, squandered a whole bunch more resources going down that path and, I never, and then I wouldn't be able to get them back. And then you think, well, what if I would have won? So you never really know. But then there's those really painful times when you actually think you're going to win. So you keep going until everything blows up so you absolutely know you lost and there's no way you could win and then you're like man why did i go so far <laughs> the clues were there that i couldn't pull this one off why didn't i stop so yeah it's an instinct thing and it just grows over time you hopefully you hone it and that's something that you know i would say that many entrepreneurs they just don't know when most don't know when <laughs> And I think that's the thing is looking at it from a perspective of what advice would you give yourself? And has that been something along the way in your own path, Calvin, that there were some ideas that you were convinced were going to work and they just, they didn't. Well, thankfully, mostly all my big ideas have worked. And, you know, I, I, I can say that there's been little fits and starts inside the big ideas for tactics and whatnot and strategy. But uh, my big projects since I started that tech incubation company, I haven't really lost any big things. And what do you attribute that to? Well, flexibility, clearly, because sometimes, uh, you know, if, if I'm working on a project and, and I'm going down a path and it's looking like it's not going to work, instead of kill, killing the project, I, I reimagine it. And sometimes I will just do a sidestep with it and then carry on with something that's slightly different. So it's, it's creativity in some cases to solve problems. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's basically, um, sometimes you've got to really take, we have the ability to take the step back and reimagine everything because we're all guilty of locking in conceptions. And, uh, yeah, I can give you an example of, uh, just one thing I had uh, years ago in the gaming business, I had uh, the gaming technology, gaming platform, and I had a payments platform. And I was really tight on money at the time, and I had to get this thing up and running so I could start generating revenues before I ran out of, out of capital. 
But I was sitting there at nine o'clock at night on a Friday night, slumped in my chair, thinking that there's no way on the current plan I'm going to be able to pull this off. And so I just came up with a simple little idea of throwing the entire payments platform away and just renaming because there was two companies that were going to run the two technologies. So I just said, well, hold on. I said, it doesn't matter which platform the website, the web pages are coming off of. The person, the entity that owns that page that gets generated can be defined by the brand on the page. So I actually threw one, the one platform entirely away, made some tweaks to the, to the gaming platform to, to have a little bit of payments stuff inside of it. And within a couple of days, I had the thing up and running. And that was just a rebranding exercise of some web pages. And I actually had that, and that was so simple. And yet I had to argue with my web devs and my tech team the next day about it they couldn't because they had locked into the same paradigm as i did that one company the payment company had its has its uh payment platform and the gaming company has its platform and the web page is served off each to find who owns that platform that the concept of throwing the one platform entirely away which was mind-blowing to them because they'd worked on it so much and just rebranding some pages in the gaming site like they literally argued with me about it, but yet eventually <laughs> they, they came around to my thinking. We did it, and boom, it worked. That was just a simple little thing, but it, it was probably existential that abs- at the time. Absolutely is. You know, the thing is, Calvin, that I see that this building side of you—that you want to leave something impacting, something that can change the world, something that can make a right. difference—and that's my primary motivator with uh, BSV right now because it's a technology that solves real-world problems. And how do we learn more about BSV? Well, uh, CoinGeek Conference, CoinGeek Live is coming. You go to coingeekconference.com uh, or just coingeek.com. And it's uh, over three days. It's in New York and London, and it's live streaming, so it's free. You can just go open up an account and watch it. And because it's in New York, it's going to have more of a focus than the previous ones on finance and enterprise. And uh, it's still going to have a little bit of consumer application stuff on it. And uh, the conference is going to evolve, though, from, from here forward. So, so I'm going to have a smaller version that's going to be more uh, a cross-section of things. It's going to float around to different jurisdictions. And probably New York, London, and maybe somewhere in Asia, we'll have what I call anchor conferences, which will get big. And we'll have different uh, channels in them because BSV will have a, a consumer-facing app channel it'll have an enterprise solutions channel it'll have an infrastructure channel because the infrastructure is unique doesn't uh, do any of the, of the kind of transaction processing infrastructure that's used anywhere else it's all being pioneered right now in fact by companies i'm invested in and uh, uh finance channel did i say that one anyway it's going to be different channels and then people can then go to these events and actually focus on the area that they like because i i've seen some people complaining that we've had a, more of a finance and enterprise focus for this one thinking that that's the way it's going to go. It's not. It's just that's what we want for this market right now. And and, and, and in fact, uh, the pandemic, of course, has caused us to have to change our strategy. I, I imagine it has made many individuals across the world have to change the way they've done business. And so final question, entrepreneurs out there that have been struggling, that are challenged by what's happening in the world, uh, what advice do you have for them? Do something you like. It is the secret to success. You'll almost never be successful doing something because you think that's where the money is and you don't like it. Well said. Thank you so much for joining us. Do, do what you like. Life's tough. Calvin Air is tougher. Thanks again, Calvin.
Thank you. Thank you again, Calvin, for sharing your story with us. And to the listeners out there, what a story. Now, he started off as a farmer. He operated a produce stand. Ultimately, put himself through school, got a degree, started a technology company, and found the opportunity. You know, they say that opportunities don't happen. You create them. I challenge you to create the opportunity. Is there something out there right now that you should be focused on? A company you should start? An idea that needs to come out of your head? Something is there. You just got to find it. Thanks again, everybody. Life's tough. You can be tougher.